Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the lives that we can read about there. Thank you for the instruction they provide to us as to how we can live in our day. Father, I pray that you would take Daniel's example and take the reality of Nebuchadnezzar's life and the things that we see here, that you would impress them on our hearts and that you would do deep work, soul work in us uh, to, Father, to produce good fruit. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Daniel chapter 4 as we continue the series called Engage. So you can turn to Daniel chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. There's some on the table in the back, and you're welcome to grab that and just make that your own. But um, love for you to look up Daniel chapter 4 and follow along with us. We're covering a chunk of stuff today, but it's good stuff. Uh, how many of you like to watch nature shows or have kids that like to watch nature shows? And I love the, the Planet Earth stuff, and we've watched all those and cycled through many of those. And it's one of those things that my kids can watch, and I can sort of be ignoring, and then all of a sudden I get sucked into the moment. You know, the things that I like the most, the, the, the episodes or the parts of those shows that I like the most, just being honest, are the Predators. Like, I, I like to see the drama of the hunter and the hunted and to see if they're going to escape, if they're going to be taken down, to see exactly what's going to happen in the midst of these stories. And my, one of my favorite scenes out of Planet Earth is this scene where you've got these predators in a pack that are hunting down a, a, a group of prey. And as they do, they're, they're, they're kind of just by instinct, almost following this kind of military precision in the way they go about their hunt, where they kind of flank on this side and then everyone shifts this way and they counterattack and, or they try to escape and they counterattack and flank on the other and it kind of goes back and forth from one side to the other to the other until they spot a weakness and then it's time for the pounce and you just know that it's coming and you kind of just watch them closing in and once they spot a weakness, they're ready to jump. See, this week, one of the things we're gonna see as we look at this story is that God is hunting down King Nebuchadnezzar. And he's praying upon him and he is, he's attacking and counterattacking and Nebuchadnezzar is trying to escape and God is eventually going to pounce, not in order to destroy him, but in order to save him. And I know that's sometimes a strange image for us to think about in terms of our experience of how God would pursue us. But oftentimes you see this in people's experiences. C.S. Lewis talks about his own conversion as God pursuing him, that as he's living life as this kind of intellectual professor, he's trying to run away from the idea of God. And he writes this in his book, Surprised by Joy. You must picture me alone in that room, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God. And I knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I love the way he describes God's unrelenting approach. He goes on and says, the prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore the love which will open up the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. See, Lewis talks about God kind of pursuing him like a predator who is 
working an angle until he pounced on him and drug him into the faith. But I love the image of that. It kind of makes sense that Lewis would go on and write a story, a fantasy story called Narnia, where he pictures Christ as a lion that's hunting him down. And the key line in that story is, he's good, but he's not safe. He's not a safe, he's not a tame lion, but he's good. And he would go on and he often talked about Aslan being on the move. In our study of Daniel 4 today, what we're gonna see is that God is on the move. God is on the move as he seeks out this one named Nebuchadnezzar. And what we see is that Daniel has a role to play in this great adventure of God's pursuit of this king. And here's what's amazing for us. You know, Daniel is just, he's a normal dude like you and me. He he was not a priest or a pastor or a prophet or a preacher. He was just an average guy. He was actually a college-age kid that got drug off to a foreign country. And yet God is gonna use him to alter the course of someone's life. And God can use you too. And so as we get into this today, what we see is <coughs> that we, get, we are invited in and we get a front row seat to see what God is doing in the world. So let's read about Daniel's, um, let's read about the pursuit of God and the life of this king in Daniel chapter four. And we're gonna actually start in verse four. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that I might make known to them, that they, I'm sorry, that they may make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in. And I told them the dream, but they could not make it known to me make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream. As you think about Nebuchadnezzar, and I love the the opening line of this story as a writer, uh, this is just a great way to start a story. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me very afraid and you feel the tension break in. What's going on? God is intervening. God's breaking in. God's disrupting and disturbing the peace and the comfort that Nebuchadnezzar feels. And the king, (coughs) as we walk through the story, what we see is the king's been restless for a long time. Even though he was powerful and even though he was prosperous, he's been unsettled in his demeanor and unsettled in his ways. And God is breaking in to his perfect world and disrupting his comfortable life. Think about the way God's pursued him so far. Daniel chapter one, uh, Nebuchadnezzar brings an enemy nation, Israel, into exile, into the people of Babylon. And there's these guys, Daniel and a couple of, three of his friends that all of a sudden are there in the king's palace and in the mix. And they begin to rise up through the ranks. And so now Nebuchadnezzar, this king, has a relationship with this foreign people that worship this other God. Second, in Daniel chapter two, what we see is that Daniel begins to rise up in the ranks because of his kindness and because of his wisdom. He has, he has the king's ear. And so now the king has a relationship with an advisor who is one who follows after the true God. Daniel two, then uh, he has a, God provokes him and gives him a dream and tells him of his eventual downfall. And Daniel, God's man is there to engage that situation and speak truth to the king. Daniel chapter three, Daniel's friends were cast into a fiery furnace by the king 
And yet in the midst of that, there was not three men walking around in the furnace, there were four. And one looked like the son of the gods. And so he brings them back out. So now he's seen a supernatural experience that's taken place in Daniel 3. Now here in Daniel 4, God has sent him another dream. Can you kind of feel God closing in on Nebuchadnezzar? That he sends him a message this way, then he flanks him on this side, he flanks this side, eventually he's looking for a chance to pounce. I mean, God's closing in on him. And maybe you feel a little bit like that king sometimes. Maybe you feel like, like you've been running, like you've been trying to hide and you can't really get away. Maybe you've been trying to avoid the questions that come, the nagging questions, the nagging worry, the, the nagging um, kind of thoughts that come. What if God is real? What if we really do live forever? What if you were created by a divine being? What if you were made for something more than yourself? What if you're wrong about the faith? And maybe, maybe God's trying to get your attention like he was trying to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. Well, let's look at this dream. Nebuchadnezzar's dream, uh, you think about the, the story of his dream, what happens is there's a huge tree that grows up and you see it and it's expansive. It says it fills the earth and rises to the heavens. It's incredibly fruitful, so much so that it can feed all, the, uh, all, the, all those on the earth and it provides shelter for all those under its care. And so you see this huge tree and it says, uh, we see that it represents Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, that he's an enormous empire full of wealth and strength. And then a divine being, a watcher, a holy one is sent and enters the scene and begins to speak against the tree so that the tree is cut down to its roots. And <clears throat> in some ways, this, uh, this dream looks a lot like the dream that, Daniel, or that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel chapter two. In both of those, there was this enormous structure. In Daniel two, it was a statue. In Daniel four, it's a tree. <clears throat> but in both of those, it says that it filled the earth, that it rose to the heavens. It's this enormous thing. And in both of them, it said that the, the enormous thing that he's dreaming about, it represents his kingdom. And in both of them, eventually, that, uh, that structure is going to fall, which is gonna signal the end of his kingdom. But there's something new in this dream that's different from the other dream. One, this structure, this tree represents only Nebuchadnezzar. And it's not a, it's not a static uh, structure of a statue. It's a living structure of a tree. And it represents this man, Nebuchadnezzar, in his kingdom. But you notice there's something different here from the earlier dream. In verse 15, it says, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth. See, the tree is cut back, but it's not destroyed. The, the, the tree is not annihilated, it's pruned. There, which means that when the roots are still left, that there's still hope of regeneration. There's still hope of new life. And so in the middle of what appears to be this destructive scene, you catch this little glimmer of hope that shows up in the midst of his dream. See, this is not an arbitrary punishment. See, the holy ones were sent. This is a, a heaven sent word of warning that serves a purpose. In fact, it says that it was to this end that all of this happened, that he might know that there is a most high king over all people, that in the land of the living people would know, which means there's a message that's come that's a sign of warning that if you turn, there's still hope for you. So the second part of the dream is going to, it, it kind of creates this radical scenario where a man come, becomes a beast and we're gonna get to that in just a moment. But what you see is God has plans to humble this prideful king. So Nebuchadnezzar um, seeks out Daniel and asks for help in understanding this dream. And what you see is Daniel, as he's written up, really has some street cred now. 
that he is, he's trusted by the king. He's trusted by those in Babylon, by this foreign na- nation. They're seeking him out by name and personally inviting him in saying, Daniel, you've helped us before. Can you help us again? And so Daniel, this one who again is not a pastor or preacher, he's just a dude that happens to be put in a key place, has an opportunity to make a difference in this man's life. In verse 19, we catch a glimpse of why Daniel is God's man to engage this situation. Verse 19 says, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. The king said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. What you see with Daniel is he was emotionally invested in the life of this king. That he had a relationship that tethered his heart to the life of this king who was a foreign king. This king who had overcome his own country, who had drug him off into exile. But Daniel was committed to him and is emotionally disturbed. It says he was dismayed. He was alarmed by what he had to say. Daniel didn't want to offer this bad news. In fact, he says, I wish this could be given to anyone else. I wish I, wish I didn't have to tell you what God is saying to you. I wish this bad news went to every one of your enemies but you and I both know this message was sent to you, King. And so I'm gonna have to speak truth. And have you ever had to deliver news that was difficult but honest to someone? Man, it's, it's tough, but you still have to say the hard thing. What we see in uh, this chapter is Daniel intervenes to deliver God's message to his friend. In, verses, uh, in verse 27, says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Break off your sins. He's calling him to repent. Repentance is really the only right option when God gives you a warning. The only, the only right course of action is to reverse course and go a different direction than you've been going when God steps in and says, hey, you're going the wrong way. That's the only right response. And there's two areas that Daniel says he needs to shift his course or change course. He says, repent and live under the lordship of God in your personal life, individually, but also repent and live under the lordship of God in terms of your social life and the way in which you care for others. Jesus said something like this. The greatest commandments are what? To love God and love others. And so Daniel's calling Nebuchadnezzar back to live out, as, as live out of a place of understanding God's desires for him. You see, when you understand that God is God, there's always a reaction that takes place that brings about change in your life. And so Daniel's warning Nebuchadnezzar that God's gonna cast him out like a beast, but he also gives him a, a word of mercy, that there's a, there's a limit of how long you will live like that if you learn your lesson, if you're able to turn around. He says, if you learn that heaven rules, if you, that, that you'll continue to live as a beast until you understand that the rules, who rules the kingdom of men and that God puts people on, God does as he wills and puts people on his throne. See, this is important. This is the, the message that God's been trying to get through to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two and chapter three. Now here in chapter four, God's been coming at Nebuchadnezzar and trying to get him to acknowledge that God has allowed him to play at king for a short time, but that there is a most high king who's above all earthly kings and Nebuchadnezzar serves at his whims. He's calling him to recognize God's true sovereignty in his life. And you notice Daniel pleads with him that he's, he's begging him to respond appropriately. 
I think it's helpful for us to step, stop here and just step back and ask the question, what enables Daniel to speak with such conviction, but also with such love? That he holds those two things together. He speaks with this kind of bold conviction, but also this courageous love to stay there in the midst of his friend. Well, first, he believes that he's been sent by God to be there at Nebuchadnezzar's side in that moment. He understands that he has a sovereign God who has orchestrated the thing so that he now finds himself in this opportunity to speak, uh, speak the words of heaven to this one whose life is in danger. He's a part of a bigger plan. We, we talked about several weeks ago that God had sent the nation, nation Israel into Babylon and that God intentionally said, you're only gonna be there for this amount of time, but while you're there, I want you to plant yourselves. I want you to seek the welfare of the people here. I want you to do good amongst them and live amongst them as though you're one of them, caring for them, not losing your distinction as the people of God, but serving them as though you truly care about them. And so Daniel looks at this and he knows he's been positioned in a time and place and that God has opened up in a, in a sense kind of a bridge or a portal between heaven and earth. And he is the, he's the one that bridges that gap. He's the one that carries the message of God to this King Nebuchadnezzar. If we're gonna, if we're gonna engage our world like Daniel does, and we've, gotta, we've gotta follow this pattern. We've gotta understand that it's important that we're present in love and kindness with those around us, and also at the same time, that we unapologetically, unabashedly, uh, <clears throat> and unashamedly speak truth to them from God. Now here's what I know about us. Some of you are too confrontational without being very kind. But I'd say a lot of us are kind, but we don't wanna be confrontational. We wanna avoid any confrontation at all. What I like in Daniel is this combination of both, that he's kind, but he's not afraid to speak truth. That we have to have a balance of both. And you see that in Daniel's life. I think it's helpful for us as I look at this, just to go, man, which side do you fall off on? I mean, do you, saw, do you fall off on the side that, like, dude, you're ready to blast people with truth? You're ready to just unload on them? And that's never a problem for you, but, but you don't have a sense of, they don't have a sense of your compassion and love for them? Or are you one of those that, man, you'll sit by someone's side and you'll care for them, but you'll never say the hard thing that God wants you to say that might actually turn them around and get them on the right course? Daniel was able to do both because he saw himself as an ambassador, a representative sent by God to deliver that message. And it's interesting for Daniel, he was the only person who could have delivered this message to the king. He was the only one that God had positioned in a place to be able to speak in that moment. He was the only one who had the king's ear, who had the king's trust. He was the only one who was able to, in that moment, step into the gap between Nebuchadnezzar and the Lord and speak truth to him in a way that could save Nebuchadnezzar's life. Friends, I think it's important for us to acknowledge too that there are people in this world that have no other messenger from heaven except for you. You are the only one that's earned the trust of that relationship. You're the only one that God has sent into that neighborhood or into that workplace or put on that team or assigned to that high school classroom. You're the only one that finds yourself in that place sitting with that person at a time where they are vulnerable and they need to hear the truth from heaven. And there's no one else positioned to engage that situation except for you. And I think this text asks us, will we step into the gap like Daniel did and will we speak for them? Daniel's an example for us of how to live. Now, here's the question. How effective was Daniel in his communication? How, how persuasive was he, was he of the king? 
Well, what we're gonna see is not very, at least not initially. At least not initially, he doesn't seem to get the response he wants. And so what you see, and I think this is a good lesson for us too, our job is to deliver the goods. Our job is to deliver the message and then leave the results to the Lord. And Daniel has to do the same thing. Uh, whenever you look at verse 29, verse 17, or 29, 30, let's look at how the king responds. At the end of 12 months, so nothing has changed for 12 months, right? Uh, so Daniel presents, tells him what to do, tells him you need to repent, tell you, tells him he needs to turn around. But at the end of 12 months, the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. Why does the king walk on the roof of his palace? He's surveying, look at all that is mine. Look at all that I have accomplished. Look at all that I have lordship over. Look at, uh, look at all the things that I have done that are, that are beautiful and good. See, there's a temptation for us. Pride always says, I wanna be king of my own life and my own world. In fact, this is kind of the story of, uh, of the Bible from beginning to end, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Uh, the, Adam and Eve are tempted and says, hey, if you do this thing, you can become like God. You get to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel was built and they construct it. In Genesis 11, 4, they say, um, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens where God resides and let us make a name for ourselves. And we humans are constantly caught in the trap of trying to be independent from our sovereign king, from God. But God brought the Tower of Babel down and he's gonna bring Nebuchadnezzar down as well. Verse 31 to 33, let's look at what happens in this episode. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. God interrupts him. That's what he's saying, is Nebuchadnezzar speaking and saying, look out over my kingdom. And while the words were still in his mouth, God says, hang on. And he literally interrupts him in this moment. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar and he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Dude, that's a wild scene, right? And when you think about what is going on here, I think it's important to say that sometimes our hardships, our hardships and our difficulties are sent by God to us in order to get our attention. Sometimes God is trying to shake us awake from our slumber. Now it's important to also acknowledge like not every bad thing that happens to you is a punishment sent by God. That this really, that sometimes suffering is just suffering. Sometimes you've been wronged against. Sometimes there's things that happen in life that have no connection to your spiritual condition, whatever. But sometimes, like in this case, you do see that God actually sends hardship upon a person in order to, uh, not, not to punish them, but kind of as a father disciplines his child to try to provide a corrective behavior and turn you back and get you on the right course. With Nebuchadnezzar, God literally had to cast him down onto all fours like an animal in order to get his attention. 
So this is not an accident. This isn't just an overreaction. This is all God's doing. You notice the language that says, he was driven out from among men. He was cast away from the people he once ruled. And so he finds himself dwelling in a field. He finds himself, it says he's covered with dew, which means there was no shelter over his head. So in the morning, whatever it is that fell from the heavens tumbled upon him. And it's amazing to think he used to snap his fingers and a steak and baked potatoes showed up from delivered by the servants. And now he's forced to graze like, a, like an ox. In fact, this word, one of the commentators said is, you know, it's not, it's not even like he's a wild bull, which might symbolize strength eating as he wants to. This is more like a domesticated animal who's being fed something, who's, who's, in, who's been subjugated under someone else's care. His mind, it says, is like a beast mind. We don't really know exactly what this is. It likely was some kind of a mental illness where he was uh, behaving sort of animal-like. And we don't know exactly how long it lasts, but it says seven periods of time. Um, I don't know how fast your hair and nails grow, but I'm guessing it's not hours or days. It's probably seven years that he lived like this in the midst of this world. And Desmond Ford said, pride makes a boaster a beast. And it's almost something allegorical in terms of the lesson we're meant to learn here, that when he holds on to his pride, he actually becomes more, he becomes kind of less human. Now imagine, this is, this is a pretty big shift for a king, right? Imagine if that took place in our day. I mean, we, we, we love, in fact, we, we, we click on anything that looks like the fall of a, of a hero or a star, right? Like we love to see the fall of our celebrities, of our politicians, of, uh, of, of our heroes, our athletes, even our pastors. When we see that they fall, you know, we're, we're intrigued by what brought them down. Imagine the stories that would be told when your king is running around in a field acting like a cow. Man, I'm just picturing the memes. Imagine the, the string of memes that could be created by the, the king of the cows and the pictures that would be sent around if, if this happened today. But what was God up to? What was, what was the purpose? So I think there's a lesson that we're intended to learn here. See, when, when people reject God's instructions and put themselves at the center of the universe, they don't experience a more human life. They experience a less human life. They become less than what they were, or what they were intended to be. Tony Evans says, sometimes God allows things to get worse because he, has a big, he is after a bigger goal. He makes things worse to show how big a deliverer he can be. He does it with different strokes for different folks and his ways are rarely, rarely repetitive in nature. Friends, there's good news and bad news in that statement. The fact that God's not, not repetitive is good because it likely means you're probably not gonna find yourself wandering around like a cow in a field. So that's good news for you. So rest assured, uh, there's also a warning in that, that God is at work, that God does sometimes stir us up in order to get our attention. Sometimes he wants to, he allows things to enter our life that he's saying, hey, are you paying attention? Do you see what's going on? Are you trusting me with your whole life? And he's continuing to come at us because he wants to show off what kind of deliverer he is. And God's unique in everyone's life and he doesn't work in any of our lives the exact same way. And yet what you see here is uh, God is, is pursuing Nebuchadnezzar. 
Think of the ways he's pursued him. He's sent godly people to live in front of him so he sees their example. He sent godly words that come his way to offer him a word of warning. He's allowed him to experience supernatural things that ought to get his attention. He's now brought him a sense of devastation and lowering in order to wake him up and kind of rattle him so that he would listen to the words of God. And while Nebuchadnezzar seemed to positively respond and at the end of Daniel 2 and the end of Daniel 3, uh, Nebuchadnezzar kind of tips his hat to God. But what we see is it was kind of a surfacey sort of a, wow, your God seems wise or wow, your God seems powerful, but nothing had penetrated his heart. Nothing had captured his heart. He hadn't really changed. Now, what we see here at the end of Daniel 4 this looks a little bit different. Um, I, I think this looks a lot more like an honest confession of belief. I want us to look at verses 34 and 35 and look at the result of what happens. At the end of the days, and I think what he means by the end of the days, it's the, the end of the seven periods of time where he was going to be stuck in this bad situation. Nebuchadnezzar is saying this. He says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? <clears throat> Says I lifted my eyes to the heavens and immediately my reason returned to me. My sanity came back. See, the order is important here. The order is important here. What we have is surrender. This is a moment of surrender. When he lifts his eyes to the heaven, he's acknowledging, I can't help myself. And so there's a sense of his relinquishing control and surrendering to the sovereignty of God. And as soon as he does, it says his mind came back to him. His mind was immediately right. See, the most sane a man can be is when he knows that God is God. When we understand who God truly is, it gives us a right view of our lives and of the world. And the king says, my reason returned to me. And what immediately happens? He says, then I blessed the most high and praised and honored him. When he surrendered to God, his reason came down and praise went up. He, that's worship. I blessed the most high, I praised and honored his name. Let's look at his confession of belief because I think there's some key things that we need to understand about our own state before God that Nebuchadnezzar seems to have gotten here through this event. So let me give you four things. This is kind of the king's proclamation of the gospel. It's his, I think, confession of belief. He finally admits first that the king, God's kingdom is forever, that there is, no, uh, th there is no one but him that will reign for all time. He admits also that human beings are as nothing he says. Now, when he says human beings are as nothing, he doesn't mean that you're of no value. He's just saying that in, in comparison to God, and you have no power, no strength, no wisdom, no might, nothing that you can throw at him because you are, because uh, he's holy other than you are. He's acknowledging in his, in his sense, he's confessing that he is no better than anyone else, that no human being has standing to kind of shake their fist at the Lord. He admits also that God's judgment is unquestionably right and holy. Anything that God does is fair. What he's saying is, look, anything God does to judge me, I have earned and I have deserved. And so if God who is holy and righteous offers a judgment, then no one can question his judgment. And he also finally admits that God is worthy, not just of a tip of the hat, but worthy of a worship of his whole life. 
So verse 37, he says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And friends, this is the message of the gospel. The proud will be humbled by their own undoing, but those that humble themselves before the Lord and repent will experience restoration. And that's the gospel in, in a nutshell. Surrender is the path to salvation. And this whole thing's pretty remarkable, isn't it? A king that becomes a beast who repents and looks up to heaven and is restored and God, um, God renews him and he becomes a true worshiper of the king. Matthew Henry, old commentator, uh, I love his statement on this. He says, we must admire free grace by which the king lost his wits for a while that he might save his soul forever. And do you think at the end of his days that Nebuchadnezzar regretted those seven years where he was out of his mind when he knew that for all of eternity he'd be in his right mind and he was able to save his soul for all time. See, it was grace that Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and it was grace that restored him as well. God was at work in it all. So what do we do with this? What are we, what are we to see? Uh, what can we learn from him? I think, you know, we've seen Daniel's played a significant role in this, uh, this king's life. And you've seen his friendship and his care for him. And, and I see no way that at the end of his life that Nebuchadnezzar would look back and not see Daniel as one of his treasured friends. Daniel stood by him literally for decades and was a faithful friend to him. Through many years, Daniel, think of the things he displayed. He, he displayed excellence in his work, integrity in his character, kindness in his relationship, courage in his words, patience in his demeanor, stability in his life, and purpose in his presence. Daniel had earned the right to be heard. He'd learned to speak his language. He'd learned to eat his food. He'd learned to converse about the literature and the culture and the arts of that place. He had learned to negotiate in business and politics and in the realm of, you know, of that society. And all through all of that, he had earned the right to speak truth to his friend. He'd become, in a sense, an insider to the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And through, though Daniel had lived, you know, it's interesting for me as I thought about that this week, Daniel had lived through years of investment in this relationship. This wasn't like he spent a couple months with a guy. Years he had invested in this relationship. Years he had experienced rejection where Nebuchadnezzar had ignored the warnings which he had given. And yet Daniel had, left, had done what he could and left the results in God's hands. And friends, I believe that one day when we get to heaven, we will meet Nebuchadnezzar there because of Daniel and his friends and the witness they gave to this king. So I think one lesson we need to learn is that God's grace travels best across bridges of relationship. Friends, you see that in the scriptures throughout, you see that in your own experience, but God's grace travels best across bridges of relationship. Within the sphere of your life, within the, the paths that you, that you wander week in and week out, and there are relationships that you have that no one else has on this planet. There are people that you intersect and, and, and bridges of, of conversation that you have with them that no one else has the opportunity to have. And I think it's important for us to see that like Daniel, and we have been placed in a moment, in a time, in a place, in relationships with friends as a part of God's sovereign plan. And that God has sent you into that place so that you can speak as Daniel did, so that you can love as Daniel did. So let me ask you a question. Who are the men and women to whom God has sent you? Do you know their names? 
like our names popping up in your head right now. Like it might be worth pulling out your phone and just typing in like, man, I know it's this guy and I know it's this guy and I know it's that, that, other, that other fellow at work and I know it's that, that other parent on my kid's team and I know, and just to write down who they are, do you have a handful of people that you believe God has sent you so that you might be a bridge for the message from heaven of God's goodness and his grace to go to someone else? So God is constantly sending his people to share his message with others. And if you're a believer, I promise you, God has sent you. He sent you into this world to make himself known and to make his grace and his love known to those that are around you. And you can't control their response. Your job is just to go deliver the goods, to go deliver the message, to be God's presence in their life, and then to trust him with the results. But you have to understand that you've been sent. There's purpose in the presence of your life with all those around you. And your friends need your friendship as Nebuchadnezzar needed Daniel's friendship. So by all means, and pray for them, listen to them, eat and drink with them, laugh with them, care for them, but also tell them. Tell them the truth of who God is. Tell them the truth that there is a warning that comes to those who are proud and refuse him. Tell them the message of hope that if they turn, that God will restore them and they can experience life with him forever. And this is the greatest opportunity we have on earth. And this is the only life we have to offer it. C.T. Studd said it this way, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Friends, let's live with an eternal purpose. Let's be those who are present among people as friends, who care for them, who are willing to invest years in them, with them, who are willing to have them ignore the message from heaven for years and years and years. And let's be faithful and leave the results to God in great hopes that God would interrupt their life in such a way that they, that they would one day lift their eyes to heaven and have all their sanity restored and their relationship restored. Let me leave you with this. This is a poem that I heard years ago and I ran across it again this week. And I think it asks a good question. Can we truly say that we've been friends if we've not shared with our friends the greatest gift we've ever known? It says, my friend, I stand in judgment now and feel that you're to blame somehow. On earth I walked with you day by day and never did you point the way. You knew the Lord in truth and glory, but never did you tell me the story. My knowledge then was very dim. You could have led me straight to him. Though we lived together on earth, you never told me of the second birth. And now I stand this day condemned because you failed to mention him. You taught me many things, that's true. I called you friend and trusted you. But I learn now that it's too late. You could have saved me from this fate. We walked by day and talked by night, yet you never showed me the light. You let me live and love and die. You knew I'd never live on high. Yes, I called you friend in life and laughed with you through joy and strife. Yet coming on coming to the end, I cannot now call you my friend. And that's tough words. And I don't mean this merely as guilt, but I do want to disrupt enough to get our attention. Friends, God is sovereign and all doesn't rest on your shoulders. 
But can we truly say that we've lived as friends if we've withheld the message that God sent us to share? Let me pray for us. Father, would you help us to be those who engage our friends with the good news of your grace and your love? Father, would you give us passion for those in our city who need to know you? Father, you help us to be faithful friends for years and years, a presence in their life to offer care, to offer wisdom, to enjoy, but Father, also to tell the message that you've sent us to share. Father, for lives are at stake and forever is in the balance. Pray it in Christ's name, amen. Hey friends, let me just uh, throw one thing at you as before we sing this last song and and thank you, Ryan and Josh, for being here with us today. Um, it's been great to have you. Man, I think about this. Uh, think about what it'd be like for Daniel to be on the other side of all that, to be with Nebuchadnezzar, who was truly worshiping, to worship with the friend that he got to be the messenger that God used to bring about his deliverance. And Nebuchadnezzar says this, same time my reason returned to me, for the glory and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are true. For those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Imagine Daniel singing with Nebuchadnezzar, praying with Nebuchadnezzar, walking with Nebuchadnezzar as he grew in his understanding of God and his worship of him. And that's the privilege we have and what we have to look forward to, not just here, but forevermore. So let's share boldly and let's worship boldly. Let's sing. Let's sing, I will build my life.